We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Caitlin B. Curtis is a member of the Potawatomi Nation, as well as a Christian, a public speaker, and a poet. She is the author of Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God, and Glory Happening, Finding the Divine in Everyday Places. She travels widely speaking on matters of faith and justice within the church as it relates to indigenous peoples and has been a featured speaker at conferences such as Why Christian, Evolving Faith, the Wild Goose Festival, and the Festival of Faith and Writing. Caitlin is a monthly columnist for Sojourners, has contributed to On Being and the Religious News Service, and has been featured on CBS and in USA Today and The New Yorker for her work on having difficult conversations within the church about colonization. You can learn more about her and explore her blog at CaitlinCurtis.com. Caitlin, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you so much. So we like to begin our conversation just with an open-ended invitation to speak a little bit about your relationship with silence, either today or in the past, positive or negative, just however you feel led to lead us off. Yeah. So I have an interesting relationship with silence because growing up later in childhood, I, you know, I always had a television in my room and I love music. So there was always background noise to my life. I don't think, you know, I, I did my homework after school with the television on and if the television wasn't on, I was sitting somewhere listening to music. Like there was always noise in the background of my life. So silence was never, unless I was just outside, you know, participating with nature. I don't think silence was ever something I actively sought or understood was important. So it's really been in adulthood and really in the last few years that I've started to kind of ask more about what silence might have to offer. And you know, I'm a mom of two children. Um, so in my life right now, silence is very hard to come by. It just is. I think that's true for a lot of us. I remember um, a few years ago, I, I went to a, a private retreat in New Mexico with um, Richard Rohr and a few other teachers. And later, I ended up teaching at that retreat. But when I first went, it was kind of one of my, it was really one of the first times that I had gone to a, a retreat where we all d- practiced meditation together. And we had these huge just chunks of silence and you're out in the desert. And I grew up in New Mexico. I lived there for a few years when I was young. So it was a very sacred space for me. And so having the combination of all of that, I was just, I don't know. It was like I was cocooned into this new reality that I didn't know was out there. But when I came home, there's just this stark end to it. When I came home to toddlers, you know, Um, and I realized that I have no idea how to keep this going. So it was, it was a very strange reality of 
trying to like figure out how to practice silence when you have a home that's full of life and full of noise. And I still struggle with wanting background noise all the time. You know, I, I love music, but I, I want it on. Or I, you know, want the TV on sometimes in the background of what I'm doing because I'm so used to that. It's like my, my comfort zone in a way because I grew up with it. Yeah, so I, I struggle with silence. And I think what has been partnered with silence, like I said, when I was younger as an adult now too, is just being outside, which isn't perfect silence, but it's silence with the sounds of what nature offers us. And I think that that is a kind of silence um, because it, it quiets us, you know, and it allows us to hear something other than ourselves. And I think that that's kind of the, the deep well that I can draw from, even if I can't meditate every day from my home. So it's, it's a struggle. I'm always trying to figure that out. Um, it's a, an interesting relationship. So I have to ask, what are some of your favorite bands, favorite musicians? Oh, uh, I really enjoy a uh, kind of acoustic folk music. Um, so Gregory Allen Isakov is a, an artist from Colorado that I really love. Um, and then I love jazz. So every night I sing, um, jazz songs to my kids when I put them to bed and I kind of just force them to like it <laughs> so um yeah I love jazz and I love quiet uh emotional music I guess so mm. that's what I like to listen to but I'm a four on the Enneagram so that's probably why in your new book Native which is absolutely wonderful thank you for writing it yeah this book about identity and it tells your story as a citizen of the Potawatomi nation and as a Christian and not only do you write so much about the personal aspects of deconstructing your faith, but also the decolonizing of your faith, which I deeply appreciate. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of a two-part question. First, can you speak a little bit to the story behind the book and how it came to be written? And secondly, can you speak to the power and significance of deconstructing and decolonizing our faith and how that can deepen it? Yeah. Um, I started, I think Native was just... Um, Native was kind of the next step in my journey that just happens to fall into a book. Um, because when I started writing my first book, Glory Happening, I think I was already starting to deconstruct some things. You know, I was referring to God more as mystery than these patriarchal terms that we've used for a long time. I was, um, I don't know, I was, I was slowly kind of making my way out of beliefs that I had had since I was young in the Southern Baptist Church. And so I think I was, even without realizing it, starting to kind of break apart some of those things. And so I think Native was just kind of birthed out of the next step, like you said, of not just deconstructing, but also decolonizing, you know, recognizing that if my identity as an Indigenous person matters, and whatever my spirituality is, whether I'm a Christian or not, whatever my spirituality is, um, it has to be one that's tied to breaking apart systems of colonization if I'm going to be a person that is made to love others. And I believe mm -hmm. that no matter what religion you are, it's just that's who we're called to be. And so that part just, it all kind of came together in my mind that if I'm going to deconstruct and begin to, you know, criticize and ask questions of what I grew up with, which was a conservative faith, um, if I'm going to ask those questions, then I also have to ask, you know, well, how have I actually participated then in systems of colonization? And can I continue to do that? And for me, the answer was no. And that's a, it's so nuanced. There's so much gray area. It's not like you just flip a switch and you're decolonized, you know, it's a lifelong journey. And I think that we're all 
always going to be doing it if we're trying to do it. So my, my book one is, you know, is just that journey. It's, it's my own, you know, it's my journey. I'm not speaking for all indigenous people or all women or all Christians. Um, it's just my, it's like all of the liminal space of my life, just, just written in one book. And, and I believe that we, so many of us live in those liminal spaces and I just want to help people recognize that and be okay with it because it's awkward. It's always awkward to live in those spaces and, you know, decolonizing is just, um, that's a hard thing. And I think it is not, it's not an individualistic type of journey. It's the communal journey. And so I wanted to give people a way to see that through my life and then to be able to think about how they can approach it through their own lens. This kind of reminds me of something I wanted to ask you from Glory Happening also. Sure. Um, There's just a really beautiful rhythm to that book. And I really appreciate that. Um, And in that book, you write, we are shaped by our daily habits, by the way we pray in the light and in the dark, by the way we speak and the way we trust. And so I got, for some reason, I got stuck on this idea of trust as prayer. And so I started thinking about that and the beauty of that. And I think many Christian circles fail to heed embodied and bodily wisdom. And especially Mm -hmm. when that comes to feminine intuition And I wonder if that's connected to the impetus for the native book. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, when I was writing glory happening, what happened for me, it's sometimes I feel like it's the opposite. When we, if we grow up without these boxes to hold us in, when we find them, we feel safer sometimes for me, because I grew up in these very constrained boxes of religion. When I was able to get out of them and realize that there's this, just divine mysteriousness of God, that actually became really comforting to me. It became something that I felt like I could trust more than the ideas that I grew up with, if that makes sense. And so I think that, yes, that just carried over into, you know, into native, like thinking more about like um, feminist indigenous identities and, and um, intersectionality with, you know, indigenous women and black women and, and other women of mm-hmm. color, thinking about all of these things and how my femininity or my indigenous wisdom, what I embody is tied directly to the land and to mother earth, who is a mother. And I just, I didn't grow up with any of that kind of imagery. So yeah, even as I wrote the book, it was shaping me along the way. I think it was like this discovery of these things as I was writing, as I was processing. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I can't remember who said it, but but there was a an, an essayist uh, in the last fifty years or so who said that I write to create my thought or to give voice mm. to my thought, and so this you know this idea that writing really is a creative act, mm-hmm. and that you know it. I mean, this was my sense. I, I read Native before I read Glory Happening, so it's kind of interesting to yeah to to get your voice backwards. But I really felt that Native really was you finding your voice in a much more, I, I, I don't want to speak for you, um, but there seemed to be a finding of the voice that was really quite beautiful and quite powerful that, um, that emerged out of that book. Was it a scary book for you to write? <laughs> yes, it was. And it was, it was hard to write. I, I, was, um, I started therapy maybe a year and a half ago. And so, you know, beginning therapy, which has been amazing. I I love going to therapy, but, you know, being able to do that and then processing my identity and my faith and my, all of it, all of it, you know, 
what kind of human I want to be? You know, those are really big questions. So because of my indigenous identity and my religious sort of uh, trauma and experiences, you know, pairing all that together is very heavy material. And there are some days where I would be writing and then I would, I would be like, I just feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over. And then my partner would read it and he would be like, there's so much in this one page. There's so much here and it's heavy and it's full. But to me, since it's my lived experience, I feel like I was just, you know, saying the same thing over and over. And, and it was hard. It was really hard. Um, it's hard to talk about how Christianity has destroyed aspects of indigenous realities and cultures. That's a, not a fun thing to write about. So I had to do a lot of self-care as I wrote the book because it was just really draining on my energy and my spirit some days. It was just really exhausting. So yeah, it was hard, hard mm. and scary. You know, it's a scary thing to write about identity and, and those liminal spaces, like I said, because we like to do the binary mm. good or bad and, you know, us and them. We like to do all of that. And um, I don't live in that that it, I don't live there. So I, um, I can't write from there, you know? And so all, all that I can do is write from the liminal spaces and a lot of people are not comfortable there. So. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. Thank you for having the courage to write it. It was a gift. We recently had a person on the um, podcast named Carrie Connolly, who wrote a book called Good White Racist. Ooh. And it was really interesting to read your book at the same time or you know, about the same time that I read hers, because her book is very much written to people of white ancestry yeah. who may have a lot of kind of ego investment in I'm not a racist, I'm not yeah. a Klansman, I'm a good person. And yet we are still the beneficiaries of privilege. And we still participate in racist structures at the same time. And so, you know, this challenge is how do I dismantle my own privilege? Mm -hmm. And that's a scary question. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, and so, so it was really interesting to read your book kind of in dialogue with her book. Uh, you know, obviously, the, you know, looking, looking at the dismantling of colonization, uh, I think it's really a very similar conversation. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I'm very honest about um, being mixed. So I call myself mixed ethnicity, but I'm, you know, I'm white and I'm native. I'm white and Potawatomi. And so being white coded, which means that if I go to an airport and use my tribal ID, I am not going to be discriminated against in the way that a brown or black native person will be. And that's real. And a lot of people don't like having that conversation either. You know, mm. it doesn't take a, it doesn't make me not native because I'm also white. It doesn't make me not native because I'm white coded, but it means that I have, 
I have that privilege that other people don't. And so trying to be really honest about that along the way has been really important to me and, and telling those stories that I can still suffer as an indigenous woman, but I can also use my privilege to help make things better and to stand in those places and to speak up when I need to speak up and to be quiet when I need to be quiet. Along these lines too, you know, several times in the book, you speak of silence and oftentimes on this podcast, we talk about toxic silence, the times mm. where silence is used as a silencing. When you first started talking about silence, you were talking about what, you know, the silence as this opening up to a different kind of consciousness, our body, the world, awareness, you know, that, uh, that you find sacred, you know, you found yeah. sacred in the New Mexico desert, but, but toxic silence, we can't ignore the fact that sometimes if we are quiet, when we should speak up mm. or... Uh, or we use our power to silence somebody and make somebody be silent. Well, that's not the kind of silence that uh, that that was the first kind of silence you were talking about. It's this toxic silence. So on, you know, in your book on page thirty six, you talk about listening to the voice that's been silenced, mm -hmm. and you speak about your identity in that silencing that of that system. So, what has helped you to recognize when silence is oppressive? You know, what has empowered you to find this voice that you're trying to articulate through this book. Yeah, I'm really glad that you bring up the toxic part of silence because you're right, that is a part of it. And like like you were saying, Carl, you don't have to be in the KKK to be racist. And I wrote I actually wrote about that in Native. There is a part that I talked about like we have built institutions that don't have to have this big tag across them that says we're a racist institution. Um we carry white supremacy kind of it's just bubbling up from the ground all over the place in our institutions that we've created. And so that, I think that that's what happened for me in the church. I, I loved my church. I grew up in, like I had an amazing youth group, you know, I wasn't abused in the church. I wasn't, you know, but I, I was full on in the purity movement and I went to all the Bible studies and I've led worship since I was like 12, you know, so I was very much so, you know, all in. And at some point, especially I think as a woman, but then as an indigenous young woman, what the church wants is the white part of you and the pure part of you and the part that doesn't cause a fuss, you know, that's just what, that's what they want. And whether they say that or not, it just is. And so it's been, um, yeah, it's been really interesting to try to dismantle that. And that'll take a whole lifetime. And you can ask other women and it'll take them their whole lifetime to dismantle some of the things that we learned in a very patriarchal and sometimes misogynistic religion. But yeah, I've, I've begun to, to see that in other institutions, um, just recognizing where white supremacy is. You know, if you're not handing the mic to people who have been speaking for a long time, you know, indigenous, black, people of color, disabled people, um, LGBTQ folks, like if you're not allowing them to speak on the things that affect them, then you're silencing them. And like I said earlier, if I'm, you know, as a white native, not listening to the voices and experiences of black and brown natives, then I'm missing it. I'm creating that toxic silence as well. And it's very hard to, to see it sometimes until you see it. I've been in um, progressive churches and I've been in conservative churches and that has been in both of them. But we act like Progressive churches don't do that, but they do. They still do it. And so we have to be really careful about, again, like creating the camps of these people silence others and these people don't because 
we've all silenced other people at some time or another. But yeah, I think that a lot of the root of that is from, at least in America, is from this foundation of white supremacy that the whole point is to silence certain people and to let other people do all the talking and hold all the power. And we're seeing that right now in in this um, pandemic. We're seeing how power can take control and money can have the control and that people who have always suffered in this country are suffering now because of lack of resources and lack of care. So yeah, I think it's hard to see it a lot of the time. And I think that that's why we have to listen to diverse voices and experiences because it keeps us aware and it keeps us looking when sometimes we don't have to look if we're comfortable, then it's, we forget to look and it's not necessary to look if everything seems fine. I think another aspect of this is the topic of erasure and the erasure of practices and beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. And for people who have been silenced because of racism or patriarchy or other dynamics of injustice and privilege, oftentimes one part of healing and liberation might include reclaiming these practices Mm -hmm. that the dominant culture tried to erase or did their best to. Did the writing of Native reconnect you at all with any particular practices or beliefs associated with your ancestors? And did that reshape your life and identity as a Christian or is that reshaping your life? Yeah, I think probably not like as I was writing Native, but as it was being created inside of me, I think I was already um, connecting back to those things. And I don't live near my tribe, you know, um, my tribe is in Oklahoma, and then there, there are more Potawatomi people in the Great Lakes. And so it's hard to practice ceremony if you're not with your people. And so I recognize that there's a disconnect there still for me. And um, so trying to go to the Great Lakes and go back to Oklahoma when I can and when I can afford it and take my kids and my partner has been a really important part of my journey. But yeah, I, uh, you know, the first time, and I, I think I write about this in the book, the first time that I heard a prayer in Potawatomi, it just completely overwhelmed me because I didn't know we had our own language growing up. We didn't talk a ton about being Potawatomi. It wasn't sitting at the dinner table and talking about our culture and why, why it's important to be Native. You know, we weren't doing that. We were just surviving and being alive, which is what trauma and assimilation do. And so we didn't talk about those things. So as an adult finding out that we have like cultural stories and that our language is our spirituality, like it's all tied. So now for me, like praying in Potawatomi, it takes up a whole different part of my soul than praying in English does. And, um, you know, being able to use our sacred medicines, you know, sweet grass and um, cedar and uh, sage and tobacco and being able to pray with those things and being in community with other indigenous people and listening to our music and, you know, going to powwows and seeing that all of it, all of it, anything that I uncover of what our ancestors gave us is just a whole nother unraveling of my spirit where I just see more. And at the same time, it, (laughs) every new layer makes me question Christianity (laughs) even more. So, you know, so at this point I often say I'm kind of on the, the periphery of Christianity, but people still let me come and talk to them. So that's nice of them. But uh, I've definitely been called pagan a few times and I don't mind it, even though they think it's a really mean thing to say. (laughs) I love hearing about this. It makes my heart smile so much. I 
part of the work I do is I, I teach at university, and my area is com- what we call comparative theology. Uh, yeah, and, and, yeah. And so the idea of, hey, you're in a tradition, and okay, you're grounded in that tradition, but then you, without colonizing, how do yes. you go and learn and listen and open yes. up and engage? And and then what does the theology look like after you do that? And that yes. methodology and everything, that's what I do. That's kind of, so I, I, I absolutely adore, a lot of comparative work has been written about the made, quote, the major traditions. Mm-hmm. There are more and more people writing about Native American and and natives and indigenous spirituality around the world, African and yeah. Mexican and Asian, et cetera, et cetera. And I just absolutely adore this because I love the dialogue of you hearing, and then you're grounded, and then you're questioning, and you doubt, and you yeah. wonder, and you. Str- I, I, that's where I live. That yeah, that and it scares people so much, and and it that makes sense that, you know, I can see people sometimes just holding on for dear life to their Christianity because they are terrified and I get it you grow up with those things and they are you're told that they are the safest space you can inhabit but once you break out of them and see that there's a really beautiful world out there it just changes things and I inter interfaith and interspiritual dialogue has been just beautiful for Mm -hmm. me to begin doing that too because I grew up also with the you know, you need to surround yourself with Christians and you need to be careful with anyone who's not. And, you know, there's just so much fear of the other. And now being able to embrace whoever is, is just a beautiful thing because it's, there's so much freedom and, and so much curiosity. It's okay to be curious about the world and to be childlike in that curiosity and just ask questions and wonder and read books. And, you know, that's a beautiful thing, but we're just so scared. And I want to thank you, like Carl thanked you. I mean, your book allows for this space because you're saying through your voice and through your journey, you're saying, hey, it's okay to explore this and to be scared yeah. and to wonder. And I I so connect with this idea. Like you just said, Christianity was offered, hey, this is your safe space. But we were offered oftentimes a Christianity that was colonized. You know, it was colonized. Oh, totally. Yeah. So it, how safe is it if it's been kind of co-opted? Um, yeah, and it's not safe for others. Then we're passing around this religion that is not safe for most of the world. And, and so then you get to offer what in your book, hey, let's actually look at Christianity when it is safe, when it's been, right. when we open it up and we talk and we dialogue and we're not afraid of the other. And I just appreciate that you're doing that. So thank you. This is the end of the first part of a two-part interview. The conclusion to this interview will be released in our next episode. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccolman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. 
When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.